Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. And Merry Christmas. This is our first Christmas we've ever had at City Light Lincoln. And so we want to make sure we started out right by exalting Jesus and, uh, and celebrating everything he's done for us. Um, well, my name is Austin, and I'm a pastor here. And uh, I didn't grow up in, in church, and so I thought uh, Jesus was just a word that we said when we were frustrated and angry. Uh, so I didn't know the meaning of Christmas at all, but I did know that I loved Christmas. Because although I was on the naughty list from January to November, you better believe I cleaned up my act in December to be a late addition to the nice list. Okay, So I was cleaning my room. I was taking out the trash. I was smiling more. I was wearing deodorant more often. Just so my parents would say, man, this guy is serious about the nice list. And so I'd get some pretty awesome things for Christmas. That was my hope, right? Um, but before we get into uh, just the text even, I just want to say, man, for a lot of us in the room, uh, this might be your 40th Christmas that you've celebrated. And, and you might know the Christmas story by heart. You can maybe quote those, uh, those verses or know exactly where they are, know exactly what happened. But I pray that, um, that our knowledge of that wouldn't diminish our passion for it. Does that make sense? Sometimes the familiar can, can just kind of fade to us as we know that the beauty of the familiar fades. And so I just pray, I've been praying on my knees this week, God, I pray for our church and for my family that, that we would love Christmas, that we would understand this isn't just another holiday, this isn't just another little thing that we celebrate, but it's, but it's you celebrating your birth and what you've done for us. Amen? So th- this might be your first Christmas too, this might, and I'm not talking about the first time you open up gifts under a tree. I'm saying the first time you ever realized that December 25th, that you're celebrating Jesus' birth for you. Not just as a baby, not just to celebrate a national holiday, but his birth for you. And so if this is your first time coming here, I'm glad you made it. I hope that you would see this isn't just a religious activity or a duty, but this is a family celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Okay, so just to preface it with that, this is what this morning is. I hope it's a celebration, not just a stiff religious duty. But um, I want to ask, man, have you ever um, anticipated something so much but had to wait until Christmas to get it? You know what I mean? Like, but you know what the present is. Okay, so uh, I bought my wife some shoes, and she literally picked them out. Okay, so we're at the store together. She picked them out. I bought them. She's like, hey, Austin, can I, uh, I can open them, right? Like, because I know what they are. No, no, you got to wait till Christmas. And she's like, no, please, I'll cook, I'll do whatever you want, you know? And I'm like, no, you got to wait, girl. Girl, got to earn those Nikes, right? So she's not getting them right away. So she, she's pretty excited for the Nikes. But anyways, um, but we don't like waiting, right? We really don't like waiting, especially when we know what that gift is. And anyone in the room that's married or engaged knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like, when I was engaged to be married to my wife, I was counting down the days that I could call my fiance my wife. Like, I was so ready for it. I had my calendar. I crossed off. You ask me any day of the year, how many days away? Easy. Buck 75. Like, I knew exactly where it was, right? So um, all that to be said, I was so ready for that day. And my wife, um, she's, she's 38 weeks pregnant right now, which is incredible, a.k.a. she's ready to pop. Like, that belly is big and beautiful, okay? And, uh, and I love it, but we found out when she was about four weeks pregnant, and, um, and I'm telling you, these last 34 weeks, I've just been so excited, so anticipating the day I get to see my daughter. Like, I'm so excited for that day, and I've been praying, Lord, let her look like her mom. Lord, let her be normal like your mom. Lord, let her be patient like your mom. Basically, I'm just praying, Lord, don't let her inherit my beard and let her just be like her mom. That's all I'm kind of praying. I don't know if there's anything more spiritual I should be praying. You guys can give me hints. I don't know, but that's what I've been praying for, okay? So anyways, but man, I am telling you, I, I, I've 
prayed, I've longed for the day I finally get to look her in the eyes. For the first time, I get to hold her in my hands. For the very first time, I get to hear her little voice. Even if it's screaming, I'm still going to love it because she's mine. And I've long awaited that. And this morning, as we look at the Christmas story, we're going to look at a plan and a person that was long awaited. Not 34 weeks, not a couple days until Christmas, but thousands of years. This plan and this person was promised from the beginning of time and through the most unlikely circumstances would be brought about. See, but God, through all of what we might perceive as tragedy, has worked and willed to fulfill this for the good of his plan and his people. So I'd love for you to open up your Bibles, if you got them, or your phone to Matthew chapter 1. It's the very first page in the New Testament. Now, my first point is that Christmas is a plan promised long ago. So my first point, Christmas is a plan promised long ago. Now, does anyone just want to volunteer to stand up and read verses 1 through 17? Uh Uh-uh. There's about 48,000 names in there I don't know how to pronounce. And yeah, you'd be embarrassed that I'm your pastor, okay? Because there are some hard names, and like we don't want to mispronounce them. But while we're on that, like just to give you a key, if you're trying to pronounce a Bible name, just say it confidently. People think you know it. Like it doesn't have to be right or anything like that. You're going through, and I don't even, also, I don't know why we equate like Bible pronunciation of names with Bible knowledge. Like anytime I ever hear a guy pronounce like, Mephibosheth or whatever. I don't know if I said that right, but I'm like, wow, that dude knows his Bible. And he might not. He might have just heard the sermon once. I don't know. He's just better than me. But anyways, all that to be said, here's my tension when I'm reading my Bible and I come across the genealogy. And a genealogy is basically just a long family tree. And anytime I come past that, my tension is skip it. Like, I, I can't read name after name after name and father and son and then this father and this. I just, I can't, I don't know the value in it. So my tension is always to skip it. But I think that if we skip this genealogy, then we miss the beauty of the Christmas story. If we skip these names, we, we miss the beauty of the Christmas story. And so Matthew's starting out his account with a long family tree of Jesus. And though it seems like a bunch of random, random names, if you look closely, you'd be amazed at how beautiful and wild these stories are that led up to the person that we're worshiping this morning, Jesus. So I just want to quickly pick out three people in this story and show you how they point to and how we get to Jesus. See, but before we get there, I just want to say these verses are in the Bible for a reason. Like, it's a real historical account. Matthew doesn't start off in saying, let me tell you of a story from a land far, far away. Or let me tell you about a baby that came out from the sky. No, he says, let me tell you about Jesus. He was a real person with real relatives that came from an unlikely lineage. So first, we'll look at verse 2. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, we're old, like really old. I'm not even going to go. I got in trouble yesterday for the joke I made about this. So I'm just going to go through, all right? (laughs) So we're just going to go. Okay. But anyways, they were old. That's all you got to know. And Abraham, (laughs) Abraham comes, um, uh, or I mean, God comes to Abraham and he, and he tell, he gives him a promise. Okay. So he gives him a promise and it's about his wife, Sarah. And this is it in Genesis 17, 16. He says, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations and kings of people shall come from her. 
Now, Sarah hasn't been able to bear children for all of her life, okay? And and then God comes to Abraham and tells him this, and Abraham literally laughs, and he says, how is a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman supposed to give birth to a son? Like, think about it. They're in the movie theaters on Saturday in a matinee, right? And they're there, and someone's like, oh, your little great-great-grandchild is so cute. They're like, it's my biological son. They're like, all right, peace out. I'm going to call family service because this ain't right, right? Like, that's, that's, the, that's the tension. I mean, this, this is not a normal story. You can't look at this and say, yeah, that's normal. And so as they're saying, man, I, I don't know, as Abraham and Sarah are questioning, I don't think God can do this. In Genesis 18, 14, God presses in and says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Really? You think that age is going to stop me from fulfilling my purposes? You think that your fickle mind, that your small mindset of me is going to stop me from fulfilling my promise to you? No, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And you see a couple chapters later, and Sarah and Abraham have a son, and his name's Isaac. Isaac Moore, our worship leader, praise God for that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) He wasn't born the same time. But anyways... uh, so, so this happens. So God makes good on his promise. And then after Abraham's growing up, um, God comes to Isaac and says, hey, uh, I know that uh, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, Isaac, your miracle child, I actually want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham trusts God. And so he goes to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and then God stops him. And in Genesis 22, he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, saying that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Man, how, how crazy is that? That God promised uh, an, a 100-year-old couple that they would have a son, and then, they, then God asked them to sacrifice their miracle child. Like, it makes no sense how God works, but he does it, and it all works out, and now he's in the lineage of Jesus. And notice, in God's initial promise, in Genesis 17, 16, it says that from Sarah will be kings of people. And this is foreshadowing the king of kings, Jesus, that would rule in, in peace, in love, in justice. And that this son wouldn't be spared, but that he'd be sacrificed for us all. That's what this story points to. That's just one tiny verse in the, in, the, in the history and the beauty of it. So let's go to our second one. Now look at verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, in Joshua 2, uh, there are these spies, and they're sent into Jericho, and they're going in there, and they're basically just seeing how to get in, uh, ways to get around, and they run into this girl named Rahab. Now, Rahab was a prostitute, so she wasn't well-esteemed. She probably wasn't well-thought-of. She wasn't on the city council. Like, Rahab's not the most popular girl in town, but she runs into these guys, and she hides them because she believes in the power of God. And then the king of Jericho hears that, that, uh, that she ran into him. He says, hey, we'll just turn him in. She's like, no, they got away. And as the rest of Jericho is being destroyed and falling, God saves Rahab and her family. It's this beautiful picture of God using the unlikely for his purposes. And Rahab is a prostitute, like a known sinner, but God chooses her to save her family. And now she's in the lineage of Jesus. And if you know the story and you walk through it, um, Rahab was the mother of a man named Obed, who was the father of Jesse, and Jesse's the father of David. David, the one that killed Goliath. So track with me, Rahab is the great-grandma of King David in the Bible. That's not a clean lineage. That's, That's broken. That's messy. That's not normal. But again, King David, the one we celebrate, the one we think, man, this is so great. This royal family is actually from a prostitute. 
It's this beautiful story. And if you know anything about Jewish genealogies, women weren't mentioned. Because men were the ones that tracked bloodlines and inheritance. That's how it was passed on. So for Matthew to communicate women as a beautiful picture of grace to his people, saying God uses the unlikely and what society might deem is unnecessary, God will use and God will bring it about. So this is a beautiful picture. So Rahab, great-grandma of David, that brings us to our last character. So look at verse 6 in Matthew. He writes, And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Now, in 2 Samuel 11, we see the story unfold between Uriah's wife, a woman named Bathsheba, and King David. Now, David sees her bathing, uh, and, and, he, and he lusts after her, and so he takes her for himself. So this is clearly sin, clearly not right, because she's married to a man named Uriah. And Uriah was a good man. He was a faithful man and one of David's mighty warriors. And so David finds himself in sin. He knows he's got to clean it up, right? He knows he's got to fix something. And so he, he schemes together and says, hey, let's put Uriah in the front of the hardest battle, and I'll tell all the rest of the soldiers to draw back. And so he does, and Uriah dies because of what David had planned. Man, this relationship between David and Bathsheba had sin and lies written all over it, and David was covering up because of his sin. But out of this horribly messy situation, they get married, and they have a son named Solomon. So out of this relationship that didn't start out right, they have this son named Solomon, and God uses this, and now Solomon is in the family line, the family lineage of Jesus, a son that was born from a marriage that started out by adultery. Do you see that? This Christianity, the story of Christmas is not for good people. It's not for the cleaned up. It's not for the, the right and the put together. It's for the messy, and we see that in the story of Jesus. And so you might say, Austin, that's a ton of information. That's a lot of verses. That's a lot of historical accounts. But here's why it matters. Jesus' family tree isn't just a list of names that we skim over to get to the good stuff. No, it's a bird's eye view of the active and historic promise of God. God didn't walk away when things got hard. God didn't leave when things got a little bit messy and difficult. No, his divine hand guided everything along the way. Through our mistakes and through our trials, God went. The genealogy of Jesus proves that God can use a 90-year-old woman giving birth to a son. The story of, of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, shows us that God can use a known sinner to prolong and, and, and fulfill his promises. The story of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, shows us that though we can walk in sin, God can redeem that and actually bring about his purposes through us. The genealogy of Jesus should give sinners like you and I hope that God makes good on his promises even though we fail to trust him. Amen? The story of Abraham and Sarah, the story of Rahab and Jericho, the story of David and Bathsheba are a beautiful picture of God guiding all of history for his purposes. And listen, most of our lives are marked in some way by mistakes, right? We've all failed in some ways. And, and so imagine you're drawing this picture, right? And you're really, really close to this picture and you're drawing it and you're going through and every mistake you make is just a little line you didn't plan on. And you keep making that, and it's just a line here and a line there, and you didn't plan on any of this, and, and you keep making these marks over and over and over again as you fail and you make mistakes. And up close, it looks like a disaster, but the master artist pulls you back, and you see that by his redeeming grace, 
it actually turned out to be a beautiful masterpiece. Isn't that amazing? Is that up close, man, this, this painting looks like, this drawing looks like destruction and failure and loss, but as you zoom out, you see the splendor and majesty and control of God that can take our mistakes for his, and use them for his glory and our good. I heard a friend say, only the God of the Bible can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And man, I think a lot of us in the room live, live this what-if life. What if I didn't drink that last drink? What if, I, what if I would have just spent more time at home with my family? What if I didn't do that in college? What if I would have worked on my marriage a little bit harder and tried to make it work? What if I didn't say that? What if I didn't explode? What if I would have spent my money differently? What if? But the Christmas story reminds us that our sin can't stop God from accomplishing his purposes. The what if game is a, t- is a waste of energy and time. Man, God is good and able to work through our broken stories for his glory. This church is proof of it. And in my life, and even in the past few months, I've made mistakes that I look back on and cringe at. But yet God would still be faithful to redeem and to work and to move and to bring me to this place. And I stand here today as a trophy of his redemption and grace. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn my way here. God's been gracious to work through my broken, sinful life to bring me to this place. And all of us in this room have mistakes. And yet God would bring us here this morning. He can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. This church is proof of it. And so some of you are stuck in the past and you live thinking, well, what if? But I've got great news for you. City Light, the Son of God, chose to enter this particular family line, knowing full well its waywardness and sin. The Savior's birth at the end of this family tree proclaims that though your sin is great, God's love is greater still. Matthew's genealogy gives us name after name of those intricately and purposefully used by God over the course of history to further the line that paved the way to Jesus Christ. It's a list of real people, all sinful, some hopeful, some faithful, who endured trials and valleys and shaped the course of Israel's history, bringing us to the doorstep of the virgin birth. Matthew is saying that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, isn't just for Jews. It's not just for the good people who think they have their lives together. It's for broken people like you and I. That's who the good news is coming to. That's what this genealogy points to, that the gospel is for all people. Friends, this should give us hope. The Christmas story is good news for bad people. So let's read the rest of the story in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. I'm preaching right now. I'm preaching. Y'all be ready. Hey, uh, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So as crazy as Jesus' genealogy is, his birth is no less wild and unpredictable. Mary and Joseph were engaged, and then she gets pregnant. Joseph wonders what's going on. They go on the Maury Show to find out who the father is. And they're, <laughs> the Maury Show wasn't airing that season. But anyways, um, they, no, he's confused. He's thinking, what, what's going on? I got to figure this out. And as he's thinking, man, I should just leave her. And betrothed basically means engaged. But in Jewish culture, when someone was engaged to someone, they had to get divorced in order to break it off. Like you couldn't just take off your ring. So there was a clear divorcing, and they couldn't be together until that year had passed sexually. Uh, but anyways, uh, and so, so this is going on. So Joseph's wondering, what, what, what's going on? Why is Mary pregnant? And so in verse 20, an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So wait, you're telling me that Jesus Christ came from a family tree where a 90-year-old woman gave birth to a son, and then God used a prostitute to save her family, and then God used a, a, a couple that committed adultery to later then get married and have a son named Solomon, and then at the end of all of that, you're saying that Jesus was born from a virgin? And some of you in the room may, seem, may say, that sounds wild. That sounds crazy. But look at Isaiah seven fourteen in the Old Testament. He writes, behold, this is before Jesus was ever born. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And in, in Matthew 1, Matthew writes, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah seven fourteen that the virgin shall conceive. In Genesis 3.15, God promises, this is after Adam and Eve sin, that he'll send a son that would crush the head of Satan. Both Mary and Joseph belong to the house of David. In the Old Testament, all throughout this, prophesies um, that, uh, that the Messiah would be born of a woman, of the seed of Abraham, through the tribe of Judah, and of the family of David. All of the Old Testament waits for this moment, promises, and points to this child being born. And in this account, God is fulfilling the promise that he made thousands of years ago. Jesus was born of a woman, of the seed of Abraham, through the tribe of Judah, and of the family of David. He is everything that the Old Testament promised he would be. City Light, every single one of us in the room has sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. He has a holy and righteous requirement for us, and we've broken it. We've sinned both by nature and by choice. We do wrong things, and we do right things for the wrong reasons. And in Romans 6, 23, Paul says that the, 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 the penalty for this is death. Because we've sinned, we've been separated from the perfect God, and we deserve death. This is bad news. You're thinking, I know we shouldn't have came here this morning. But no, this is bad news, right? This is not good news. But the news gets even worse when we realize we can't fix ourselves. It's bad news that we've sinned. It's even worse news that we can't do anything about it. God's requirement isn't to be good. It's to be perfect. So think of the law we have in the United States. If you break even one law, you're guilty. 
If you have a felony on your record, your record will never be perfect. No matter how hard you try, how good you are, how many times you come to church or do community service, that'll never be wiped off your record. It won't ever be perfect. And in the same way, you may look better than the person next to you. Well, congratulations, but you've still sinned. And though your sin might look a little more acceptable or pleasable or culturally acceptable, it still requires death. Therefore, your sin requires death and eternal separation from God. But do not be, be mistaken. This is what we deserve. And in Matthew 1.21, here's the good news. The angel says, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. We needed saving from our sins. There was no other option. And listen, God didn't respond to our sinfulness by, by sending us a list of more things to do. And God couldn't respond to our sinfulness by lowering the standard and saying, you just be good, that's okay. No, we had to be perfect because his law is perfect and he is just and supreme and holy. And so God saw you and I in our helpless state and he sent himself. Not a list of rules, not an inspirational message to try harder and do better. He sent himself to die for us. The God of the universe sent himself to be with us and to rescue us from our sin. And listen, this story isn't just a story where God says, man, oh, my people are sinning. I should probably do something about that. I should probably fix it. What what can I do? No, Christ coming to us was not a knee-jerk reaction to God, by God to save his people. It was part of the plan from all the way. God promised in Genesis 3 and Isaiah 9 and Micah 5 and Daniel 7 and in Matthew 1, we see the fulfillment that God didn't leave us in our sin. He came for us. Amen? Amen. This is a promised, uh, a plan that was promised long ago. And there are three names that, that Matthew calls this child. And the first one is Jesus. And, and the name Jesus means Savior. And it comes from the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. So Jesus probably would have been called Joshua or Yeshua. And in the name Jesus, it means Jehovah is salvation or God is salvation. Now, if you know some of the Old Testament narrative, God used Moses to free the Israelites from slavery. The story with the Red Sea splitting, that was Moses freeing the Israelites from slavery. And so they get out and then they wander for 40 years. And at the end of that 40 years... Moses dies. And then Joshua takes over, and what does Joshua do? Leads him into the promised land. See, Moses in the Old Testament refers to the law, a list of things to do. And Moses in the law could only take us so far, but not into the promised land. We needed Joshua to take us where the law couldn't take us. See, it's fitting that that Mary and Joseph would would name their son Jesus, Joshua, because he took us where the law couldn't. He took us where only grace could. He took us into the promised land. Law could only show us that we need a savior, but grace, Jesus, gives us that savior. See, but there were many Jewish boys with the name Joshua, or in the Greek, Jesus, but Mary's boy was called Jesus the Christ. So in verse 16, Matthew writes, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now the word Christ means anointed. 
It's the Greek equivalent of um, Messiah. So if you hear Jesus is the Messiah, um, that's what he, Jesus is, the Messiah. So the anointed one or the promised one or the, the long-awaited one. So Jesus has been waited for all of history. That's what means that he is the Christ. And so Jesus is his human name. Christ is his official title. And Emmanuel describes who he is, God with us. Jesus Christ is God. And so uh, we find this name Emmanuel in verse or in Isaiah seven fourteen God with us and again in Matthew one twenty two Emmanuel this is Christmas this is the incarnation God in flesh and this is shocking that an infinite and holy God would voluntarily live with unholy sinners that he would leave his throne for a manger, that he would voluntarily be butchered on the cross by his own creation. This is astonishing. Not just God for us, but God with us. See, when God saw our sin problem, he didn't just cheer us on from heaven. He sent heaven down for us. And how unthinkable is this story that God coming down for us not as a rich prince, but as a poor baby. God coming down for us, not from a royal, clean lineage, but a family history of brokenness and sin and rebellion. God coming down for us, not just to live with us, but to die for us. God coming down to us, not just to tell us of our sin, but to save us from it. That's what Christmas is. A plan promised long ago, of a person that would save us from our sins. The promised one providing salvation by being with us and dying for us. Make no mistake, Jesus was born so that he could die. And he died so that we could live. The promise maker is the promise keeper in Jesus. And if you think for even a second that Christmas is about a naughty and nice list or good people getting good things, you're horribly mistaken. The Christmas story is a story of bad people receiving the perfect gift they did not earn and did not receive, or did not deserve, I'm sorry. But for some of you uh, in the room, and Christmas has been a time where you, you make sure you clean up and you go to church and, and you open gifts and you celebrate and have a nice meal, and all of those things are great. I'm glad you do that. But I've been praying, begging Jesus, would this Christmas be a celebration of you? that you would die for us, Jesus, that it's not just a fun little holiday, but it's a genuine, joyous celebration of a family saying the, the God of the universe would look at us in our helpless state and come for us. That's what Christmas is. You don't have to make the good list. You can't. All you've got to do is admit that you can't make it and accept in faith that Jesus made it for you. Christmas isn't about Santa or trees or lights or fun music or even gifts. Christmas is about Jesus, our Savior that came as a baby to then die and resurrect in order to save us from our sins. And some of us in the room need to know that God's promises are true. Even when it hurts, he's still faithful. Even when it seems like everything else in life is collapsing, he is still good. Friends, you can rest this Christmas in what Jesus has done for you, not in what you can do for Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray.
Uh, Jesus, man, far be it from us to ever let this holiday be about Christmas. Or I'm sorry, about Santa or gifts or trees or lights. Far be it from us to ever think about it's about cookies and good food. No, Jesus, Christmas is about you. Christmas is about your glory um, coming down to us, uh, weakening yourself to be coming down as a, as a little helpless baby to then 30 years later be um, crucified on a cross to save us from our sins. God, the story is unthinkable, and I pray that it would never lose its power in our hearts. But as we look at it, we look even deeper into it, and we'd be more enamored by it and empowered by it and blown away by the story that, God, you wouldn't leave us in our helpless state, but you would come for us. And so, Jesus, would, would that be what we think Christmas is all about? God himself coming down for us. Would we believe that love came down? The story, not a rich prince, but a poor baby. Not just to cheer us on, but to actually come for us and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Not just to tell us that we're sinful, but to save us from our sin. Jesus, you're amazing and great. And I pray that someone in the room would not think that they got to fix themselves up before they come to you. Would not think that, man, I got I to do something better and fix myself up and then I come. No, the Christmas story says that good news comes to bad people who didn't deserve it. And so, Jesus, I pray that you'd stir our hearts with faith uh, and affection for you this Christmas. That as we celebrate lunch and family and friends and gifts and trees and all of that stuff that we do for Christmas, they would all point to you, Jesus. So I love you. I praise you for my family in the room. Pray that we go from here and celebrate you and tell the world of the good news that, that God didn't leave us where we should have been, but he came for us. In your precious name, amen.